our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. And yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Veritas, because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I think it's time to open the books on the question of government investigations of UFOs. Uh, we ought to do it really because it's right. We ought to do it because the American people, quite frankly, can handle the truth. And we ought to do it because it's the law. Be skeptical. Do be as skeptical as you want, but by all, don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of the Veritas Show, where you listen because you don't want to believe, you listen because you want to know. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for tuning in once again. Today we have a great show for you, and a great show must include a great guest, and we certainly have one, and we have answered the request of so many people who wanted to hear tonight's special guest, Richard Dolan. UFOs and the National Security State. By the way, if you're listening prior to 9 p.m. Pacific Time on Friday, March the 13th, head to our chat room by going to veritashow.com, click on show info and chat. I will be there. If you cannot attend, then visit us on the forum, where great exchanges are taking place, including guest recommendations, debate, etc. As usual, to get in touch with me, simply go to our website and click on contact or send an email to mail, that's M-E-L, at veritasshow.com. Those of you who write know I eventually respond. I was going to include something I've been promising for some time, but due to the lack of time, I wasn't able to do so. I will include it on the next show. I'm referring to a clip from Dr. Mitchell's interview. Almost at the end of the interview, I asked him a peculiar question, and all of a sudden, he could not hear me, and we got disconnected, as if someone did not want that question asked. I called him again and resumed the conversation. Next week's special guest on March the 20th is Robert Morningsky. This will be an exclusive interview, his first public interview since 1999, the Terra Papers Revisited. And on March the 27th, Payne Andoff, known as Astral Walker author of Extraordinary Powers in Humans. He posted a thread on the Project Avalon forum, 
and it has had over 210,000 views so far. Obviously, people are listening to his message. He is from Macedonia and will be with us directly from Melbourne, Australia. We only have a couple of weeks left for the Veritas Video Contest. Soon, we'll post a polling system so you can decide who the winner is. Let's get a few more videos in. The contest ends on March the 31st. Also, we continue to grow on Facebook. If you haven't joined, that is a way for me to be in touch with you too. And this comes courtesy of the blog of 22050Hertz. It's a poll. Most Americans psychologically prepared for proof of extraterrestrial life. Three in four, at 74%, claim they are at least somewhat psychologically prepared for an official government announcement regarding the discovery of intelligent extraterrestrial life. Clearly, a majority of Americans are ready for the discovery of extraterrestrial life, with 42% saying they are very prepared and 32% saying they are somewhat prepared. Psychological preparedness is particularly common among the following demographic groups. Males, 83%. Only 17% women, that's hard to believe. 18 to 64-year-olds, 79% those with household incomes of $50,000 or more, 85%. Residents of the West, <clears throat> 82%. I believe that one. Those with internet access at home, 82%. Americans who believe in extraterrestrial phenomena and who claim to have had or know someone who had a close encounter of their own are also significantly more likely to say they are psychologically prepared for the discovery of intelligent life. Interesting poll, don't you think? Now let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with our special guest, Richard Dolan. If you want to hear one of the luminaries of the UFO field of research and an author with one of the best books you could ever read and own on this topic, don't go anywhere. Richard M. Dolan was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1962. He holds a master's degree in history from the University of Rochester and a bachelor's degree in history from Alfred University. He earned a certificate in political theory from Oxford University and was a Rhodes Scholar finalist. Prior to his interest in anomalous phenomena, Dolan studied U.S. Cold War strategy, Soviet history, and international diplomacy. In 2000, he published a 500-page study 
UFOs, and the National Security State. This is the first volume of a two-part historical narrative of the national security dimensions of the UFO phenomenon from 1941 to the present. Included are the records of more than 50 military bases relating to innumerable violations of sensitive airspace by unknown objects, demonstrating that the U.S. military has taken the topic of UFOs seriously indeed. Apollo 14 astronaut and veteran of the Veritas show Dr. Edgar Mitchell has called Dolan's book monumental, while Dr. Hal Putoff, director of the Institute for Advanced Studies at Austin, has declared it to be a must-read for serious students in the field. Dolan has published numerous articles on anomalous phenomena, science, and the intelligence community for UFO magazine. In 2003, he helped found Phenomena, a magazine dedicated to leading-edge issues pertaining to science and society, and for which he continues to serve as senior editor and regular contributor. Richard Dolan also continues to research and write Volume 2 of UFOs and the National Security State. He lives with his family in Rochester, New York. With us tonight, from the East Coast to the Southwest, Richard Dolan. Hello, Richard, and welcome to The Veritas Show. How are you? Hello, Mel. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Richard, do you mind, before we delve into your great work in the area of UFOs and the national security apparatus, can you take a moment and share with our audience a little about your early years, your effort to get your master's in history from the University of Rochester, and your certificate in political theory from Oxford University? Absolutely. I'd be very happy to. Um, Let's see. Back back in the olden times, otherwise known as the 1980s, I was uh, I was right after that asteroid. Remember that that killed off the dinosaurs. I do. Uh, I was back in those times. And, um, yeah, when I was an undergraduate student, I, w- I went to a uh, university up upstate New York at a wonderful place called Alfred University, where I uh, majored in uh, history and English literature, and I minored in philosophy. I was kind of a liberal arts maniac. But during that period, I uh, applied for a scholarship to study at Oxford University, and I, I won it. Uh, so. Um, that was in 1983. I studied at Exeter College at Oxford University. I was 21 years old. First time I'd ever gone overseas. <clears throat> and I had the uh, the pleasure to study under a, a wonderful scholar named Gavin Williams. Uh, I'm not, I don't know what happened with Gavin. He may still be there. But I studied political uh, ideologies and theory under Gavin. I had a really nice experience. And um, in fact, he said to me one day, Richard, I believe you should apply for the Rhodes Rhodes Scholarship, which he, right, Gavin, right. in fact, had been a Rhodes uh, Scholar himself. So he said, you know, you should apply for it. And I thought, wow, okay, I, I think I'll do that. So I went, went back to uh, Alfred University and during my senior year, applied, went through the whole Rhodes application process. It was an ordeal for me. I'd never gone through anything this involved before in my life. And... Uh, um, I had to get all these uh, letters of recommendation, like five or six letters from professors, I think. I had to write this long uh, thing out. And I made the final cut. I was, uh, it was really kind of cool. I went down, uh, I remembered interviewing down in New York City. Uh, the lady who ran the Rhodes Committee was a friend of Henry Kissinger. And she hmm. never stopped talking about that. And I, uh, I have to tell you, I was, I was not a fan of Henry Kissinger back then either, as I have, you know, know more than I am today. And I, I got kind of turned off by a lot of the Rhodes experience. And I think when I really look back that I, 
I sabotaged my own interview. Uh, they only give you like, it's like 12 minutes. You go in there and uh, they, they really try to throw you off. Like they'll, they'll give you these off-the-wall kinds of questions and see how well you think on your feet. And I, I think I was okay, but uh, apparently uh, not okay enough. So I, ne- I didn't get the roads. I made the last cut. And as a result of not getting the roads, I got accepted for a fellowship to study uh, history at the University of Rochester for graduate school. So I went I went to the U of R, as we call it, and uh, actually got my, my master's in European history very quickly. That was, I think I was 23 or 24 years old. And then uh, began work on a doctoral dissertation initially in German history, which I did throughout most of the 1980s. Went to Berlin, in fact. Uh, I was in Germany east and west a few times during the 80s, and I was in Berlin when the wall had come down. Actually, I arrived right after the wall opened. I, I predicted the event months before. I just, not psychically, but politically, I knew it was coming Is down. that right? Absolutely. As soon as Hungary opened their border to West Germany, that was in uh, late summer of 89, I, I remembered saying to people, that wall's coming down before the end of the year. You marked my you word. Saw, you saw the domino effect. Absolutely, because there's no way. The, the wall went up in 1961, because East Germany was losing their population, they were hemorrhaging people, you'd, you'd go to work one day and try to take the bus, and the bus driver would be gone to West Berlin, to West, and the yeah. whole economy mm-hmm. was about to shut down. So they built the wall as a result. Now, they could do that in 1961. They couldn't do it in 1989. There was no chance. The whole political situation was, was upside down at that point. So I knew the only way they could stop the hemorrhaging of their society was... Uh, by making some concession to the West, and it would have to be West Germany, and the only concession they could really make that would be worth anything was you, you open the borders. And that's exactly what they did. Um, so the, I was already planning to go to Berlin at that point. I was doing uh, German language and political study for my dissertation at the time, which was in, uh, get this, 19th century German political police under Otto von Bismarck. Yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, I got there a few days after the wall was breached, but I was there for the first weekend, and I was there for about three or four months, and I had an absolutely electrifying time there. I came back though, kind of bummed out over my lack of progress. I, my German language skills were good, but not great. So I switched. I went to American diplomacy, and uh, in my university, no one, no one had ever switched from. So you switched European to American. Yeah. So I started from scratch in a sense. Uh, to the American history program. And that was great. I had a, a wonderful experience doing that and uh, started on a doctoral dissertation in U.S. Cold War strategy uh, under Harry Truman, right. circa 1950. Uh, and in fact, I was uh, studying a document at the time known as NSC 68. It's a rather well-known document. You could do a Google on it. There's a lot of stuff on it. And uh, that was my whole thing. And nothing to do with flying saucers. It was all... Cold War. The basic thing with NSC 68 was real simple. It was right. a document that lands on Truman's desk in April 1950, right before Korea breaks out. And the document says, basically, we are losing this Cold War. We're getting our asses kicked. If we don't do something right now, we're, gonna, we're screwed. <laughs> so this lands on Truman's desk and at a time when he's trying to balance the budget by cutting military spending. It was the last thing he wanted to see. Surprise, surprise. So he's staring at this document for two months, not knowing what to do, and then war breaks out in Korea, and that settled the issue. And NSC-68 basically became the blueprint for U.S. Cold War strategy with the Soviet Union. It tripled defense spending and everything else. 
So uh, that was my whole thing. I wrote a lot on NSC 68. Uh, and then at that time, this is the early 90s, I was in my early 30s, I, um, I got sucked into the UFO topic. And uh, it was funny. I was in a bookstore one day, popping around, and I saw Tim Good's very excellent above top secret subtitled The Worldwide UFO Cover Up. Right. And it was a big fat book uh, on display, and I thought, oh, wow. Looks kind of neat. I remember leafing through it, and um, I, I knew nothing about UFOs at that time. Nothing that was worth anything. I mean, basically average citizen stuff. You know, I'd heard of Roswell, couldn't tell you much about it, uh, things like that. I don't think I knew about MJ-12 at that time. So I remember leafing through his book and thinking, oh, I know that name, and I've read about this department. It's you know, a lot of political stuff, but not in a UFO context. So that was jarring to me. And then, of course, in the back of his book, he has the appendices, which included the MJ-12 documents. And they sure as heck looked um, interesting. And I wondered, gee, can they be true? And so I bought the book, read it, and I got very interested. And then I started trolling around on what was then the Internet, uh, basically bulletin board groups. I remember um, Alt-Paranet-UFO was the big one. And and I just would read what people would say. So uh, I, got, I got increasingly interested. And then I ended up, I thought, I want to dive into this. I want to see, just satisfy for myself. I didn't want to write a book. Uh, whether or not I thought that there was anything to this. As, a, as someone who'd studied the history, you know, if, if it was important, why had not any legitimate academic historian really tried to tackle it, even if it was a mistake? If, if it was true that some three- or four-star general uh, took this topic seriously in the 1940s or 50s, then why wouldn't it be in a history book, right? So, I mean, it's interesting. So that book, that book at the store, let's call it an understandably fascinating object that penetrated your scholastic radar. Was that the, let's call it a UFO sighting, was that what changed your life and the direction of your career? Yeah, I guess it did. I mean, I would have to say finding Tim Good's book that day was a, a real turning point for me. And, and that combined with uh, the, the subsequent months that I spent on, on Usenet. And I didn't really contribute much. I, I was essentially reading articles that certain people wrote. And there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stupid things on, uh, on the bulletin boards. A lot of, you stink. No, you stink. But then there were people <laughs> who actually had things to say that I found interesting. And there, in fact, there was a gentleman who uh, contributed a lot of articles in 1994-95. He's not really a, a, a well-known UFO researcher, but he was a smart guy named Val German. He's still a friend of mine, and he wrote a lot of political-type analyses of, of the UFO uh, situation. That just hit me the right way. I thought, this is the kind of, of approach that I think I, I would like to try. I want to take this myself. And so then I had to start from ground zero, so to speak, with no knowledge of this topic, and I, I acquainted myself with the bibliography and just read everything. I mean, I, I read every, everything that was available, which was a lot. I read Dave Jacobs' uh, very excellent UFO controversy in America. I read all the books sure. by Donald Kehoe, the Lorenzans, uh, who wrote back in the 50s and 60s, Edward Ruppelt, and, and everything else. And I, but the thing that was fortunate for me was that I was able, from the beginning, to take very methodical, meticulous notes and that was what really allowed me to move ahead in this. I, I didn't just read the books casually. I really dived in actively with my word processor. And any time I found a relevant fact in any of the books, I made a note of it. I put a citation in, and I put it in chronological order. And I, I made this massive uh, master chronology. By the time I finished with that, that itself was a 500-page book. 
and I thought, I'm just, I'm just going to write a book. I'm just going to do it. And, um, because there wasn't a book like what I was trying to do. I mean, Tim Good's book was close, but it wasn't quite there. Dave Jacobs' book was sort of, you know, in a way, but it really wasn't what I wanted to do. So I wanted to write a big 500-page book that dealt with the UFO reality and cover-up as a historian should try to do, you know, carefully. But, and, just and, this is, and this is when the Internet was, in fact, for our listeners, he mentioned, you mentioned... Usenet. Uh, Usenet. Yeah, all the bulletin boards. They're still out there, but they're kind of... Worthless. Absolutely. But the Internet back then was in diapers. So for you to do the research that you would have to do back then, today it's easier because you have so yeah. many references online. Well, sure. Although, let me just say, a lot of the, those books are still not online. Like uh, the Donald Kehoe's books, I don't think that they're online. You, you'd have to find them. The, the Internet, though, even in the 90s, was very important for me because it didn't really give me a lot of reading material at that time, but it, it, it gave me fantastic leads. So, for example, I was able to go through my county and university library system a lot more easily, frankly, with the Internet. I would have had a harder time researching this in an earlier era. Even in the 90s, it was great. Right. Uh, now, today, of course, it is totally different. I mean, you've got news, um, all kinds of news um, bulletins and things like that that I get. And there's no problem. The problem now is sifting and, and really prioritizing. But back then, I was able to use the Internet very effectively just to find books. So the majority of, 90% of the research of that book that I did was really from other published sources, uh, and then a whole bunch of downloaded uh, Freedom of Information Act documents. So I right. downloaded hundreds and hundreds of those and, and bound them, and then just studied them in that manner. And actually, I, I made my book out of that. Uh, tried to create a, factual, a factually reliable uh, foundation on which I constructed a narrative and, and an analysis. And any any work of history is going to be flawed. It's you know none of us have omniscience and none of us have perfection in our judgment. But I tried my best. Um, I tried to um, walk a line between, I mean, overly strict adherence to the facts and only the facts. And then because if you only do that, then you're just going to have a skeleton with no meat on the bones. So you have to you have to look at the facts and you you have to not be afraid to draw conclusions of the facts. And I find that there's a lot of, there's a certain school of UFO research that will only look at the facts, the absolutely, this is all that I know. I don't know that Roswell really happened. You know, and so they're, they're ultra conservative, and I, I don't think that's very useful either. Um, on the other hand, you, you have to be careful because the waters are very deep. And so you always have to know the difference between what you absolutely know, what you know is certainly the case, and then what you think things look like. And they're both they're both valid, but you got to make a distinguishing. You know, you can't just. And that was that's what makes your book so different because it's really based on on documentation that you've researched as opposed to merely opinion, which right. is a lot of the books that we see out there. That's right. Yeah, I would Richard, say that's you, right. You have revealed in previous interviews that your mother noted that you always knew who you were, and oh, your I dad. Said <laughs> you said so that, yes. <laughs> and your dad. Who will bring up again in a later segment? Shape your character. That's when right. It's a bra- when it's a brave New York City cop, he counseled you, That's and right. this resonates a lot with me because of the, the 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 whole theme of this show. That when you know the truth, you have to fight for it, and I, that you can be absolutely. a minority of one and a beacon of truth and a figure with facts and faith in honesty and a person of integrity. That clearly is a core element of your character and professionalism, isn't it? 
Well, yes, it is. It's, uh, it is the single most important thing that I hold in my life, which is uh, I, I believe in this quaint anachronism called the truth. And right. I, will, I will always believe in it. I will never, I hope, ever be afraid to search for it. I hope that I'll never be afraid to speak it. And I hope also that I'll never be afraid to act on it. I mean, I look at truth as a three-stage thing. You, you have to find it, you have to say it, and you've got to do something about it. Uh, you know, it's really not a given that just because we know the truth, that then good things will happen. Um, you have to follow up on it. But, but stage one is always finding it and searching for it. And that's not easy to do. It's really not easy to do. It, it is um, something that a person has to actively search for. You're not going to find it just uh, passively watching Fox or NBC News, whatever. Right. Um, that's not going to happen. you really got to go out and look for it. So... Um, I believe in that. Yeah, my mother, just to mention both of my parents, they're both still alive, wonderful people. Good. My mom is a, a retired nurse. She's a tough lady. And she, she has said this to me many times. She said, look, Richard, you, have, you were like this when you were 10 years old. <laughs> you were just, I was always one of these kids. I was the oldest of three. I have two younger sisters. And right. I, I have to say, I always knew my mind. And, and I've been very lucky in one sense, Mel, which is that everyone goes through difficult times in their life, and I am no exception. I had very, uh, you know, when I was in the throes of a very difficult dissertation period, which a lot of people have gone through this, they understand. Sure. Um, I had no money. Still had no money, but I had really no money back then. And I, I almost felt like I was losing my way. But one thing I never ever stopped believing it. It's a crazy idea, but I always believed that I had something special to do. I never, ever lost confidence in myself. And that's a gift because I have many, many close friends and, and I can see that they don't all have that core confidence. Uh, there's a lot of insecurity and um, I've, I've been lucky and, and I know that I have it because I had two parents who I must say always believed in me. And I, I knew it right from the earliest years that my mother and my father always, always believed in me personally. And so, um, and I have so many friends and, and I talk to them about their upbringing and it's just not the case with them. And, and frankly, I mean, they're, they're brilliant and they're wonderful and beautiful people, but um, frequently they just didn't have, they weren't lucky. They didn't have two parents that really pushed them and, and, um, and promoted them in that way. And my dad, uh, well, we can say that for later, but my dad was a, a, a cool, undercover, tough New York City cop who was, I'll tell you right now, he was Don Quixote. My father was a man who believed not just in taking on the bad guys out on the street, but he tried to take on the bad guys in his own police department. And he paid a price in his career, I will tell you. I have no, no hesitation saying this. There's a lot of corruption then, as I'm sure there is now, but certainly back when he was a cop in the 70s, uh, there was a lot, of, a lot of graft, a lot of corruption. And my dad was never one of those guys who just took it down. He uh, took it lying down. He, he tried to fight it. Um, he was an incredibly active and, you might say, aggressive in the good sense uh, police officer, really went out looking for trouble. A lot of cops don't. Uh, my dad was one of those guys who did. And when I was... I remember, I mean, to this day, I was 10 years old, sitting down with my father. And, you know, I almost get emotional thinking about it now. But he would, he would sit down next to me. He was a big guy. 
And he would say, I'm going to tell you something. You could be a minority of one, and you could be up against a thousand people, and they could be screaming and yelling at you, telling you that, that you're wrong. But if you know that you have truth, you've got to fight for it. And don't let anyone, anyone shout you down. Don't let anyone push you around. If you have possession of the truth, you're going to fight for it. And, We're a uh, fan of your dad now, by the way. After you said that, we became immediate fans of your dad. Oh, listen, my dad, a, he's a great guy. He's an awesome guy. My dad, uh, after he retired from the, the police department, um, got a job as a fire safety director at the World Trade Center Plaza in New York City. My and, dad, for yes. seven years, worked at the World Trade Center and had, by the time of uh, September 11th, had Tuesdays off. So he wasn't working that day. He lived. He shared his job with a very nice man I had the, the pleasure to meet who was killed that day. If you, uh, just you, a month before. I met if you could hold this, because I really want to leave this till the end, because it's a fascinating story, and I have some sure. other questions about that terrible day. Uh, but yes, your, your dad was part of it, and I want to talk about it more later, if it's okay with you. You got it, Mel. Sure. Ha has this pursuit of UFO truth... And it's clearly significant impact on our, on our world, the nations, and planetary defense security apparatus. Cost you any dream of a tenure position as a professor and lead to <laughs> some chastisement and being ostracized? Well, yeah. I mean, the thing was, I, uh, yes. Uh, I, I left academia at the same time that I knew what I had to do with the UFO topic. I mean, it wasn't like a case where the, the folks at the university said, oh, my God, UFOs, well, goodbye. But but I knew, I you know I didn't I didn't test the water so to speak. I'd written more than a hundred pages of a second doctoral dissertation, and I got into this UFO topic. And I at that time this was in the um, I guess mid nineties. Um, right. Job market for historians was bad, still bad. Frankly, it was very bad at the time. I saw so many of my colleagues you know begging for uh, adjunct instructingships at various community colleges. I thought you know I'm not going to do that. I have something else here. And I'm just going to go. So I, I actually left the department. But here's the thing. Like many of my colleagues, my former colleagues in academia, every last one of them, I, I, well, most of them, think that they you know, thought that I was insane for going into UFOs. They're like, what is wrong with you? Um, and to this day, many of them, they're just not comfortable talking to me anymore because they, to them, this topic is, um, is beyond. It's... It's it's the sign that you've just lost your mind, right? And um, which is crazy because I mean I'll, I have no problem telling you this. When I was in that whole program as a graduate student and teaching classes, um, I was very highly regarded at what I did. I was certainly considered one of the top, if not the top, students in my uh, department. And, um, I had very uh, equal uh, relationship with probably every professor there, and I think I was being groomed for some nice positions, but. Uh, but I left it. Uh, I recall uh, about a year before I left academia having a discussion with one of the uh, tenured professors on the JFK assassination. I mean, hmm. something this mundane, comparatively, right? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing paranormal uh, about the assassination of JFK, but um, I remember this, this is in 93 or 94, uh, this professor was using a book by uh, a writer named Gerald Posner called Case Closed. And the whole book's thesis, I'm sure many listeners are familiar with this book. Uh, the whole thesis is why Oswald did it all by himself. Now, I was no uh, JFK expert, but I'd read several books.
and I certainly did not believe then or now that Lee Harvey Oswald was the guy who did it all by himself. And you're not alone. chance. No, the whole, the entire world outside of America believes it, and eighty percent of all Americans believe it was a conspiracy. But within official establishment culture, and certainly within academic culture, that's where the the twenty percent of Americans. Um, so this professor was teaching the Posner book, and I, being you know in my inimitable, charming way, I said, "Well, you realize that book's a piece of crap, right?" Right. <laughs> and uh, and he chuckled. Uh, I probably I don't know if I should use that language here on the radio. I apologize to you and your listeners. I will I won't drop the c word again. How about that? But I said you realize that book is is a piece of you know what. And uh, he said no no it's a fabulous book. In fact, he, Posner really lays it out. And, um, fortunately, I had read that book and uh, I knew that this author was not a historian. He was a Wall Street lawyer, and the book reads like an attorney's uh, savaging his witnesses. It was a hatchet job. And I can't remember my exact argument, but I trotted out three or four reasons off the top of my head why that book stunk so bad. And here's the moment. This professor gave me this look. I'll never forget it. He cocked his head a little bit, raised an eyebrow, and he he said, he actually said, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Oh, yes. Okay. Right. And now at that point in my life, I still had this idea that I wanted to, to work within this environment. So I stopped. I mean, I, actually, I felt like I saw myself standing at a cliff thinking, do I jump or not? And I decided I'm not going to jump today. And so uh, I, I backed down somehow, and, and, uh, and we kind of ended the conversation very cordially, you know. But I thought, this is... You know, this is a JFK. I mean, my goodness gracious, if you can't have an open discussion on the Kennedy assassination in, in academia, then think about a topic as out there as UFOs or, you know, other global conspiracies like the Bilderberger conspiracy or, or, uh, or God forbid, 9-11. You know, people who discuss those types of topics, that's even more out there than JFK. So within the academic world, that was another of these defining moments. And that, that happened probably around the same time that I found Tim Good's book in the bookstore. And so it really occurred to me, you know, that I, I had thought that I was this progressive guy. I mean, gosh, I'd been reading Noam Chomsky, for goodness sake. I thought I was on the cutting edge. Well, guess what? I really wasn't. Um, I really wasn't at all. And so I had to go through this very difficult process for the next couple of years of almost reinventing or trying to rediscover what it was about the world that I, I wasn't getting. And, and it's very difficult for someone who thinks that they're ahead of the game. It's even harder for those people because they've already gone into a groove, right? Their worldview is already being shaped. And the last thing that an above-average person who's spent their whole life uh, trying to figure things out and thinking that they're, they're ahead of the next guy, the last thing that they want to know at that point in their life is, man, they missed out on the biggest thing of all, right? The biggest thing. No exactly. one wants to hear that. There's a tremendous psychological resistance to that revelation. Absolutely. And the older you get, the worse it gets. And just, just like the, the topic of UFOs, and this has happened to you, it has happened to me, where you talk about this with anyone, and the majority sometimes look at you and ridicule you. 
The same happens with anybody who has any questions regarding JFK, regarding right. 911, or exactly. anything else. But let me ask you one question before we take a break. What would you say to the truth seekers listening to you right now, or your own children and mine, about risking such a journey? Well, uh, that's a great question. Listen, not everyone cares equally about truth. Right? Not everyone wants to read Shakespeare. Not everyone is, you know, enjoys doing math problems. Uh, not everyone has an equal passion for truth. However, what I would say to you listening is if that is something that matters to you, if you have a belief that truth matters in this world, and I certainly do, and maybe we can explore that in the next uh, part of this interview, then, then it's worth fighting for. It's worth struggling for. It's a, you can pay a price for it, too, but it's always worth it. There's a phrase. It's, the truth shall set you free. And that's absolutely worth remembering. And it's one of our slogans. Is it? Excellent. <laughs> and Excellent. we have to uh, take a quick break, and we'll be right back uh, to delve into the UFO research. We're here with uh, Richard Dolan, a luminary in the UFO research community, UFOs and the National Security State, Part 1. I'm coming soon, part two. Right. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. We'll be right back. Right here on the Veritas Show is supplied by the independent artists from GarageBand.com. If you hear a song you like, go over to GarageBand.com, look it up, and download it. You can even buy the group CDs, in many cases, right there at GarageBand.com. And welcome back to Veritas. This is Mel Fabregas, and I'm here with Richard Dolan, author of the book UFOs and the National Security State. Now, Richard, I'd like to delve into your UFO research. Uh, sure. Your incredible historical masterpiece, UFOs and the National Security State. Yeah. You meticulously, and I, I would put a capital letter there almost, meticulously document events at over 50 U.S. military bases. Your research interagency memos and reports, you studied press releases and memos and focused on only cases and topics that could be documented, which is one of the reasons why I call this book an encyclopedia, a gem for the UFO circle. How did you determine the scope of that first volume and choose your targets to research and explore? Um, it was hard at first, Mel, because when I started the research on this, this book, I, as I mentioned earlier, I was really at uh, kindergarten ground zero level here. And so uh, the first several years of the project, it took me about five years to do the book, the first uh, two or three years, probably three years, were really spent solely 
gathering data. Um, and, and um, you know, after a while, I mean, it becomes very obvious which, which types of information are more reliable than others. So, for example, um, by the end of my gathering data period, um, I had by then gotten, you know, thousands of uh, Freedom of Information Act documents. Um, and with, with those, I mean, there are documents that are confirmed, and then there are documents that are disputed. And I didn't work off of any disputed document at all. I only worked right. off of confirmed documents. Um, which, th- they won't take you to the goal line, but they'll take you pretty far. I mean, a lot of those documents, for example, uh, will describe military encounters with objects that, frankly, just were not supposed to exist. Objects that were tracked on radar, frequently seen visually, sometimes both, in which attempted intercepts were made, in which occasionally a pilot would say something like, there it is, it's a metallic disc-shaped object, and there it goes. And so these these types of documents describe such encounters. And so, uh, for me, they have a lot of weight. Now, if you, there's only one or two or three of these documents, that's one thing. But we have, of, of that caliber, at least 50 good documents, I would say, that really get into it, that describe these encounters. So, to me, that's more than sufficient. And then when you look at the tone of the documents, they're serious. They're taken seriously. These are not jokes. Um, that tells me that this is something that's important. And, and on top of that, those all were documents initially that were classified for years. We got them only, in a sense, by a stroke of historical luck. And that is after Watergate, when the Freedom of Information Act was strengthened right. during the late 1970s and before it was really gutted uh, during the 1980s. So it was like a good five-year period when a lot of these best documents were released. And so now they're all public domain, so we've got them. So, I, uh, you know, the Freedom of Information Act documents were a real foundation for me. And then the other foundations were um, what, I, what I considered to be reliable, journalistic, investigative research. And granted, this is to some extent a judgment call. However, uh, there are, you know, a number of investigated UFO cases on which there really is no argument, even from skeptics, um, about you know, at least the the basic outline of a certain event. So what I really wanted to do is a combination of two things. I wanted to make a, a narrative, like tell a story of kind of what happened, then what happened, then what happened, without too much grandstanding. But also I wanted it to be a bit encyclopedic in a sense. Right. I wanted it to be a, the kind of book so if someone were to say, gee, I wonder about that interesting case in 1958, that I would have a concise but complete description of that case that said everything that needed to be said on it, and then we move on. And that was really my goal. It was essentially a twofold goal. Um, a, a reference book, yes, but an analysis and narrative also. And I, I feel that overall, uh, looking back on it, it's been a number of years, I'm, I'm still satisfied with the book. Um, I, I think that I could make it a bit more complete today, but that's the name of the game. Clearly, that because I'm working on the second one now. Exactly, and we'll talk about it in a few minutes. Uh, clearly, you determined and agreed with the powers that be that UFOs are a legitimate topic of analysis of national security. Absolutely. Richard, it appears that it became rapidly clear to you through the abundance of documentation that explicitly detail U.S. airspace violations, UFOs being tracked on radar, etc., that security personnel and leaders took this topic very serious and that the key issue being studied is what these things are. Exactly. And that, that the phenomena is real and they're here, that there is a permanent alien presence on Earth, 
that that presence of non-human intelligence is as important to the ETs as to humans, and that that presence is characterized by stealth and secrecy by both these other beings and an elite group of aware human power brokers. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that sounds like exactly what I've written at various times. So I would say that's exactly what I believe. Uh, That, you know, this is not even a hard argument. Most of this is is a slam dunk argument. Some of the later things we're making inferences, but I think they're true. So, for example, I think it's absolutely unarguable um, that there's a phenomenon that our militaries encountered. And that's objectively quantified. And not just the U.S. military, but global militaries at this point, everywhere. Uh, They chase after these things. So then we also know that, at least from documents of mid-level classifications, keep in mind, like, the highest level classifications have still remained unavailable to us. But uh, documents that are of, like, confidential, restricted, and secret not the top secret ones all get blacked out, but the lower level ones tell us that that various levels of the U.S. military have been trying to find out just what these UFOs are, and so that when you have this great uncertainty at the same time that the military is telling the public that it's all hoaxes, hallucinations, and misidentifications of natural phenomenon, but meanwhile you know that behind the scenes they're taking it seriously. Now we have a problem. So that all, that's all quantifiable. That's all, as I say, slam dunk. Um, then we go further. We, we know that there are confrontational, very provocative encounters between our military and these objects. So now we're left to ask the question that they asked, the, the military people back in the 40s. Who's flying these things? Okay? Question number one is, was it Soviet? And we know for sure that this question was asked. Uh, there was a lot of investigation into it, and the fact is that it didn't look then, and it doesn't look now, that the Soviets made such a breakthrough. There's just there's not really enough to hang your hat on here. Okay, so question number two is: Are we making it secretly within the bowels of our own national security military complex? After all, it's a fair question, right? Sure. After World War II ended, we absconded with a bunch of high-level German scientists. The Soviets did. And it is a, it's a fact that these scientists were working on very um, unconventional kinds of uh, technologies in, in many ways. Project Paperclip. Paperclip was the project by which a lot of these guys came over, and, and it was all hidden from the Senate, from the Congress. And so a lot of these guys were unrepentant, hardcore Nazis, but the fact is they were brilliant in their field, and uh, whether it was in intelligence or in science, and they were brought over. So... But again, now this is a tricky issue because there were disc-shaped airframes that the Germans were working on in World War II. It's the one issue of my book, by the way, that uh, I wish I had known more about when I did it. But uh, unfortunately, uh, the very excellent book by um, uh, Tim Cook, Hunt for Zero Point, was not available when I wrote my book. And he did a very good analysis of this and really showing that the Germans did some advances. Uh, nevertheless, I would argue that there's still, it's a weak case to uh, suggest that the, that all the flying saucers are made from German technology. I, I, it's a stronger case than I would have thought 10 years ago, but I still think it's not as strong a case as, uh, as something that's not us altogether. You know what I mean? Sure. So I think that, uh, I mean, because we're just fighting these, we're chasing them, chasing them, chasing them. Um, who's behind this stuff? 
Is it, is it a breakaway Nazi infrastructure in 1945-46? Well, some people have argued this, but and I would take the argument seriously, but frankly, the evidence for that's much, much weaker, in my view, than, than for the contrary, which is that you have an alien extraterrestrial phenomenon. And what we find also within the own, our own military community is that this was exactly their opinion. So every time that this was studied in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and beyond, there was always a very strong ET component of faction. In other words, a number of people who argued that the most logical answer is an extraterrestrial one, and, and they were always shut down every single time. Uh, their conclusions were not desired. <laughs> Richard, you've really gotten into the hot topic of disclosure, as we always do here in the uh, the show, yeah, yeah. with uh, somebody who I admire, one of the few real journalists out there, uh, UFO journalist George Knapp of Coast to Coast. I'm a big you fan of had, Me too, me too. And you have talked about this. You, do you still hold your conjecture timetable of five years before disclosure happens, even with uh, Obama and his hands full? I, well, uh, yeah, five years is pushing. Did I say five? That would be pushing it. I might have been pressured. <laughs> I may have said that at an ex-conference where everyone at, on the stage was saying uh, six months and one year, and I'm thinking that's You wanted happen. to be conservative. I yeah, said, exactly. I said five to ten, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, I think it's going to happen, but I don't think... I, here's, here's my assessment. Uh, I see no way that uh, Barack Obama is going to want to push disclosure. And I've been saying this very consistently. My very good friend Stephen Bassett has felt right. otherwise. Well, I respect Stephen, but I, I don't agree with him on this position. Um, I think that uh, now, especially with the global financial crisis, I can't... Mm -hmm. uh, disclosure is going to open up a very messy can of worms, and a lot of that is going to be a financial mess. Um, you know, this is not going to be something that's, that has political, neutral con uh, overtones here. Um, and we can get into that, but, but essentially I think that disclosure is going to be forced on us by, I don't know what's going to be the trigger, but there's going to be something that's going to be unpredicted. And the reason is that when you look at how fast our whole society has been going, moving, developing in the last two decades, basically since we've had personal computers and Internet. I mean, it's just been phenomenal rate of change. Clearly, that change is not going to stop. We are in the midst right now of reinventing who we are as a civilization, really almost possibly even as a species. If you want to get into things like artificial intelligence, uh, nanotechnology, and who knows what else, we're, we're going to be at a point in 10 years, it seems to me, where we're going to be very, very close now to having artificially intelligent personal computers. It's, it's well, going to happen faster than we think. Yeah, well, so my point is simply that for us to assume that time is going to stop and stand still and that we're going to always look like we do today, it's not going to be the case. And in 10 years, the technological change is going to be continuing to drive economic and political change as it has been doing. So we're in a very fluid position. And in a state of political turmoil, what you find uh, historically, whether it was the breakup of the Soviet Union or the death of Mao Zedong in China or the death of even Francisco Franco in Spain or Watergate here, whenever there's political turmoil in a lot of these countries, it's very likely that UFO data leaks out, as it did in all of those cases. And I think we're not out of the woods. We're in a very high-powered, volatile period of change. And so I think, you know, with everyone who's got camcorders on their on their cell phone um, and all other kinds of personal recording devices, 
you know, I think that there's a very good chance for something undeniable, unexpected to happen that's going to force the hand of the power structure into saying something about this. And of course, technology always grows exponentially. And I had right. Dr. Mitchell a few weeks ago here on the ah. show, and he said, in just 100 years, my ancestors travel from the East Coast to New Mexico in cover wagons, and I went to the moon. Exactly. Absolutely. This is a very, very big uh, part of my thought process as well. I, I'm constantly uh, thinking about this, the rate of our change. And you think about 100 years ago, we just learned to fly. Uh, Cars were hardly ever anywhere to be seen. They had horses pulling carriages, for goodness sake. Mm -hmm. And we go from that to radios, television, atomic bombs, guided missiles, integrated circuits, computers, artificially intelligent computers, Internet, goodness, iPods, the crown jewel of our achievement. So the iPhone. Uh, And and we're going to keep going. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is astonishing. And so I think that the the technological change is going to drive disclosure. But... Whether it will happen as a result of um, efforts of the Obama administration, I mean, my feeling is, frankly, that the control group on this topic has gone beyond uh, the presidency. Uh, I'm not saying that the president is completely irrelevant to the process, but it's been my own analysis in the last few years that, in fact, we're talking about uh, a group that's gone beyond simply uh, the United States power structure. I think in a large way it's, it's international. And so I don't think that the president of the United States even is the final word on this. Now, who, who that person is is a really good question. Uh, but, you know, it's worth looking into. Just forget the UFO issue for a minute. Ask yourself, who rules the world? Is, it the, is the president the top dog in the world? And I think the answer is maybe not. Okay? There are elites who, who choose the president, okay? And that's how it's always been. And um, if the president, if the president, we had Grant Cameron last week, and by the way, I just had a picture in my mind. I imagine a roundtable with your friends, Stephen Bassett, Stanton Friedman, Dr. Michael Sahala, and Grant Cameron discussing this topic, and that would be a great show if we could ever we've done it. do it. We, we've done that. You know, well, sure. I mean, I don't know if all of us at one time, but pretty much most of us, uh, you know, Stephen organizes the annual X conference, and right. uh, most of the people you mentioned are typically there. Stan uh, Friedman is usually not there, but Grant has been there many times. Michael uh, Sahala has been there. Uh, I mean, the one thing, cool thing about the conferences is uh, we have, you know, we'll have at the end of the conference the... Uh, all the presenters will be up there to discuss issues. But a lot of times, uh, the, the most interesting discussions, I hate to say this, are at the bar after, after the uh, whole thing is done and we're just, we're just rapping with each other. That's when disclosure really happens. Yeah, right. And that's, uh, I mean, we hash out a lot of these things and we've had some very interesting discussions. But, um, so where were we with this? I was talking about, gosh, I, can't, I lost my whole thread there. Right. Uh, you were talking about uh, disclosure and how the president sometimes, and oh, we've, right. so, we've, we've seen it on Carter when he wants to know, and is, and is told, you don't have the need to know. If the person right. in the highest office does not have the need to know, who has the right to know? Right, right, exactly. So, oh, here's what I was going to say along those lines is, right. you know, you could take the UFO issue out for a moment and simply ask yourself, um, what is the true structure of power in this world? Because that's relevant to the whole issue of disclosure, isn't it? I mean, we um, like to think, you know, back in the 1950s, it was all so easy. 
Uh, there was a UFO group at the time called NICAP, and they were the sure. probably the leading guys who you know leading the charge. Uh, Donald Kehoe, a retired major in the Marine Corps, ran NICAP sure. for years. And year after year, Kehoe's goal it was a very straightforward goal. It was logical. It was we're going to have open hearings on this topic in Congress. And of course, that makes sense because, especially in the 1950s, you believe Congress is the arm of the people, right? The people elect the members of Congress. They are our elected representatives. They're our our body, so to speak. And Congress will hash this out. And so Kehoe's goal every year was to try to get congressional hearings. And part of NICAP's story was how they would get right to the 11th hour, and it looked like there were going to be hearings, and then the rug would be pulled out from under them at the last minute. Um, Now, I mean, doing that today, I mean, it just doesn't seem like a very logical strategy, because I think that many people understand that the U.S. Congress is essentially window dressing. Who's really in charge? Who's really in charge of our world? Well, look at it uh, economically and financially, and, and a great way to understand this is understand this new stimulus package, uh, the so-called bailout. And this will give you a great idea of who's running the country. In the uh, stimulus package, this is about a month ago, there was a, a very big clause that was making news, and it was the Buy American Clause. You may remember this even. Of I'm course, sure people, sure. Right. So the whole idea was, I mean, it makes sense. If you're an American, you want to support the American economy. So part of the stimulus package was that, um, you know, steel would be purchased from American steelmakers and other products would be purchased from American manufacturers to help create a new American infrastructure. Okay, great. Here's the problem with that. While the stimulus package was being discussed, the G20 were meeting in uh, Switzerland. And they don't want that. Europe Absolutely doesn't not. want that. Yeah. A member of the, I remember the head of the Carlisle Equity Group said, I mean, had the gumption to say, oh, well, that part of the stimulus package, that won't happen. <laughs> and he said, that was just something for politicians to vent some steam. Now, if you're Barack Obama, you could take that one of two ways. You could take that as an affront to your authority. You might say, who the heck are you, buddy, right, to tell right. me, right? No, that's not what happened. Several hours later, after that statement, a member of the Obama administration said, we will have to revisit that part of the stimulus package. Okay, they backed down. It's a global economy of transnationals. They're all interconnected. One can't survive without the other. So, So if it's like that with something as profound as the stimulus package, all right, if we cannot control our own destiny put it that way, as right. a country, as a republic, regarding our economic survival, all right? So who's really in charge regarding other matters such as the control of the UFO secret? Now, the thing is, it's, it's very obvious that the U.S. military structure still has some connection to this. Obviously, it does. Um, and, but the real question, then, is who is the U.S. military working for? Exactly. All right? It's a, it's a fair question to ask. I mean, you know, I don't know how far afield we want to go here, and I'm sure there'll be certain readers, listeners that are going to get annoyed here, but why the heck is the U.S. military in Iraq? I mean, let's get real here. They're in Iraq because private entities have taken over that oil. And they've also, I, I think they're privatizing the water, too, which is another important resource of that nation. And this has been a goal for ages. 
That's well, George Bush Sr. They wanted to privatize the Iraqi water and the oil, and they didn't get it. Now they've gotten it. Right. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a resource. I mean, you just mentioned water right now. And, I, and by the way, also, you mentioned the economy. And I have something to say about your friend Catherine Austin Fitz in a, in a few minutes. But water, absolutely. Yeah. I'm a big admirer of her. Uh, water. In the future, we're not going to be fighting for, for territory or for oil, but it's going to be resources like water. And let me ask you, before I forget, and you may know this, but let me share it with the audience, that Jana Bush has secured on behalf of her father, former President Bush and the Bush family, the purchase of nearly 100,000 acres of land in the South American nation of Paraguay. And this has been confirmed by several Latin American newspapers, including one that featured on its cover page, Bush Buys Land in Northern Paraguay. It's a farm that sits on one of the world's largest aquifers, the Guarani Aquifer, which borders Brazil, Bolivia, and Argentina. This transaction is believed to have been consummated because the International Committee of the Red Cross, based in Switzerland, has opened a war crimes portfolio charging the United States President, Vice President, Defense Secretary, United States military commanders, and the majority of the United States senators and congressmen with crimes against humanity over what the United Nations has declared as an illegal war in the Middle Eastern country of Iraq. The ties between the Bush family cartel and Paraguay predate the current American president and have their roots going back to his grandfather, Prescott Bush, the top American financier for the German Nazi regime. And as you know, Richard, Cheney allegedly has moved his assets to Dubai. No extradition treaty there. And for Bush, Paraguay, no extradition treaty there either. Did you know about that purchase? Actually, I did not know that. I did not know this, so thank you for bringing that to my attention. But it, it, fit, it fits the whole pattern. It fits everything to a T. Back in uh, 1990, when, when George Bush Sr. was president, um, the whole lead-up to the, the Gulf War, it's just one of these stories that I think Americans and people in general just have absolutely not the faintest clue about, about how this whole thing went down. I mean, in the year or two before that, Saddam, his war with Iran went from 1980 to 1988. It bankrupted both of those nations, basically. So Saddam's Iraq comes out of it in 1988 with, with nothing. They're massively in debt. Uh, they owe Kuwait an enormous king's ransom. Kuwait says, well, you've got to pay up now. Um, and then they had all the argument over the price of oil. Saddam's trying to uh, raise the price of oil. Kuwait saying no, and OPEC saying no. Saddam's only friend during that whole period was George Bush Sr. Right. George Herbert Walker Bush uh, was trying to get multi-billion dollar loans to Saddam over the objections of his own cabinet, uh, who said, you know, we think this guy's developing biological and chemical weapons and maybe even nukes. Well, guess what? The United States greatly facilitated that whole process, and that's all on the historical record. So, um, but For the whole reason was that George Bush, who was a protege of Henry Kissinger, who was who is essentially owned by David Rockefeller, and this is all—they're all part of the same group here. What the Rockefeller group wanted all through 1989 with Saddam is they wanted to privatize. They said, "We'll give you loans, no problem, but you've got to privatize to some extent your oil." And by privatize, that means we get to buy it, right. and we want you to privatize your water. Okay, and Saddam said no. This is my goose that lays golden eggs. I'm not going to do that. And so once he realized that he had nothing to get from the pinstripe set, the Rockefeller group, uh, but even then Bush continued to try to cajole Saddam into kind of like winning him over, essentially bribing him. 
Bush wanted to give him loans to open Saddam up to the possibility of letting him privatize his oil and water. And that, that failed. I mean, the whole thing failed. And Saddam was basically, in my opinion, suckered into invading Kuwait. I didn't want to open this door, but you opened it really wide. And for those who, <laughs> who are listening, that's okay. For those who are listening now, this is a show about the truth. But there's a re research done that Saddam went to April Gillespie, the former ambassador of exactly. the U.S. in Iraq, when they found that the Kuwaitis were slant drilling. And they say, we need to put a stop into this. What can we do? And apparently, April Gillespie uh, reconvened with uh, Bush 41. She went back to Iraq and said, we have a policy of non-intervention, basically saying, we're going to look the other way. To me, that sounds yeah. like a setup. He yeah, invaded. Right. Yeah. They and, that. yeah, go on. Sorry. And not only that, but then we remember the pictures of that young 15-year-old Kuwaiti girl that said that the Iraqi soldiers came into the hospital they took the babies out of their incubators, took the incubators, and left the babies on the cold floor to die. She was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador to the U.S., who had been taking acting class, and she was not living in Kuwait. Exactly. That's a total fabrication. I'm glad you brought that up, Mel. It's absolutely uh, correct. And the, yeah, it was all, all just uh, a propaganda. It was a mind job on the American public, okay? And Americans, you know, it's like the, the, the elites baked it and served it, and the people just ate it. Swallow it. They just swallowed it right, at, right down. Yeah, that was a, that was a, I remember those, and I didn't really think much about it at the time. I wasn't really up on it. But yes, that woman, that was a complete fake, uh, absolutely fake. The whole thing with April uh, Glasby, the U.S. ambassador to Iraq, is uh, the American defense establishment knew that Saddam's troops were at the Kuwait border for a long time. Right. And, uh, and the whole point of that was America's position was that Saddam had legitimate grievances with Kuwait. In fact, right. they told him this. They said, we, we're, we're fine with that. We, we understand. We sympathize with you. Uh, he's got hundreds of thousands of troops there. Kuwait, of course, had once been part of Iraq, and a lot of Iraqis were still uh, unhappy over the fact that Kuwait, the oil-rich Kuwait, was broken off by Britain when Iraq couldn't do anything about it. So he's got the troops there, and he said, I want to know what is the United States' position on this dispute. And Abel Glasby said, I have instructions from actually Secretary of State Baker, who is, Baker, of course, right. Right, uh, that this is an Arab-Arab dispute, and the United States has uh, no, uh, we have no interest. It's set up. Right. And then, and then she went on vacation, as if to underscore America's lack of interest. And meanwhile, in this incredibly tense diplomatic situation, all America had to say, frankly, was we will respect the sovereignty of Kuwait. Right. No big deal. But, you know, the language of diplomacy, one has to understand, these people don't, no one speaks in the obvious way. Everything is understated in diplomacy. So Saddam's thinking, well, George Bush is my best, best friend, is essentially giving me a green light to take back what should be ours anyway. And I think that's, Personally, now, I mean, of course, uh, historians are going to dispute this, and you're going to have the establishment historians who say, no, no, no. But look, I think it's a legitimate interpretation. That's sure is what it looks like. I don't know how we got into this, except to say, who's in charge? Oh, because of the um, privatization of that exactly. country. When you get exactly. right back to it, who is, who is running policy? They run policy so that a certain group of individuals who really hold all the cards get to benefit even more. So the policy in the U.S. military today 
is being used not to uh, give the Iraqi people freedom. And what is this all about? Um, that's absurd. It's not. It's not even to protect us from the fictitious weapons of mass destruction, which did not exist in 2003. They were gone, long gone. No, uh, they're there in order to lock down control over the oil fields, which they have done very successfully, and and then to allow the oil fields to be sold off, which they have been done. They have been sold off. They've been privatized. It's not something that's made American news, but the Iraqis are certainly aware of it, that the oil paid for their whole infrastructure back in the old days, their hospital, schools, roads, and what have you. That's, you know, it's well, a how much of how, how much of that oil is, is paying for the expenses that we have uh, incurred in this war? Well, not enough, because we've bankrupted our own treasury, haven't exactly. we? Exactly. Whatever they're paying. And, and that, you know, we're really going all over the place, but let's just get into it. Americans... If you have the time, by the way, if you have yeah. the time, because we have so much to cover, but let's <laughs> sure let's go. Do. If you have the time, great. Go ahead. Well, Americans in 2003 were sold this argument uh, by people like Dick Cheney, and he said, well, if we go in, Don't worry, it won't cost us anything. First, it'll be a quick victory. And besides, the Iraqi oil is going to pay for it all. You remember this? Of course. That's what they said. Now, that's what we call a deal with the devil. All right? Because essentially what that meant is we've created a false pretext for invading this country. Plus, we're going to pay for it by taking their stuff. And, you know, the kinds of countries that do that, Hitler did that. I mean, Hitler literally did that. He would invade Poland or Hungary or wherever and steal, rob their treasury, and then pay for the war on that basis. That's what those kinds of guys do. Right. And that is literally, I mean, this is not using any hype here. This is exactly what America's argument to its own people was. And, you know, back in 1864, when Abraham Lincoln uh, delivered his second inaugural address, It's a it's a really magnificent speech. Um, he openly wondered whether the horrible devastation and deaths of the American Civil War were God's vengeance and retribution for the grave sin of slavery for 150 years. And you know what? You go fast forward to our time, and this horrific situation now economically that America is created for itself. Is this a retribution for a really, really bad thing? Americans lost their head after 9-11, and they kind of willfully did it. Now, not everyone, but a lot of people did. And, um, you know, there's still, there's a, a lot of bad feeling in this country, because Americans know that they've, that something really bad happened to us as a nation. It's not just that we were attacked by terrorists. We became the kind of nation that in prior generations we used to fight against them. We became uh, a kind of empire that has this bloodlust. And, um, and so, but people don't want to come to terms with that, especially if they've supported us, so they live with a bad conscience. It's like I, when, I'm sorry, what? And I hate to say this, but whenever I hear September the 11th, The name of Reichstag Fire comes to mind, and I can help it. The, the name what? I'm sorry, I, I missed. The Reichstag Fire. Oh yeah, well exactly, exactly. 
the, the Reichstag fire, I mean, back in the old days, I studied not German Nazi history to the excruciating level. Good Lord. Um, but the, the Reichstag fire was, was a, a, a great mind job Hitler did on, on his own people. I mean, what happened was Hitler came into power in 1933. He wasn't dictator right off the bat. He was a right. uh, chancellor. He was like a prime minister, essentially. Mm-hmm. A month later, the German parliament, or the Congress, which was known as the Reichstag, was set ablaze. Now, we know uh, that the Nazis planned it and did it. They blamed the communists, and they used that event to pass emergency powers for Hitler. And I can guarantee you that your typical German of the day, even if he didn't like Hitler, probably couldn't conceive that his own government could be behind such a thing. But guess what? It happened. Deja vu. Exactly. And in America's own history, by the way, um, we didn't really have a true Reichstag fire till 9-11, but we had a lot of close calls, like the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution in 1965, which led to the escalation in Vietnam. That was a, a load of garbage foisted on the American people. Um, you know, even Pearl Harbor now uh, has a large share of revisionist historians who believe, uh, perhaps correctly, that Roosevelt and his chief of staff, George Marshall, knew that the Japanese were going to do it, and they, they let it and almost willed it to happen so that they could justify the war. They, they may have had a cause for doing it, but I guarantee you, if Americans had thought that in 1942, Roosevelt wouldn't have been impeached, he'd have been imprisoned. Okay? They wouldn't have bought that. <laughs> they wouldn't have been too happy about that. So we have our own history of lying to the American people about things. Project for New American Century. We need a new Pearl Harbor. That's what the report says. That's exactly uh, right. Something else that may sound trivial to some, but the episode, the pilot episode for The Lone Gunman in July of 2001 had almost to a T what happened on September the 11th. You probably know what I'm talking about. I, I do, yeah. The Lone Gunman, of course, is a spinoff uh, TV show from the X-Files. X-Files uh, right. Covered this thing. It was phenomenal. I mean, just a few months before 9-11, they basically had an episode that dealt with a 9-11 type scenario. It's really amazing. But uh, we've gone all over the place, haven't we, Mel? <laughs> That's, let, let's go back to the rails again. Richard, if we can, Indeed, pick, your, if we can pre- pick your brain, and before we go to break, let me ask you this one. To. Do you discuss in your new book your interesting discussion of the power picture in the world of UFO and security? You have proposed a triangle with military and transnational defense petrochemical corporations at the top corners with the government at the bottom which has evolved into a flip triangle. I call it yeah. an inverted pyramid. Right. Now a more isosceles triangle with the multinational power brokers on top and the military and government positioned below with the corporate handlers now as first among equals. Do you still see the power picture poised in that position? Yeah, that's, that, that's about right. I do. And in fact, I do treat this in my next book. And incidentally, let me just mention the, the second volume of UFOs and the national security state's uh, is uh, I it, it's going to be done any week. I mean, the actual writing. Uh, I'm I've finished just about every single part of it now. I'm doing okay. a little bit of cleanup here and there, and then I'm, I'll be publishing it. And I'm looking into different possibilities how I want to do this. But it's all coming out soon. It'll be five to six hundred pages, and it'll wow. cover from ni- yeah 1973 <clears throat> to the end of the Cold War 1991. It'll be the second of a three volume effort. Uh, the good news, by the way, for Volume 3 is that that research is 98, 99% finished anyway, so it Great. won't take me forever to do that. Volume 2, though, is what I'm focusing on now. <clears throat> it covers an absolutely pivotal period in our history. I mean, far more than I realized when I set out to do this. Uh, but your question is, do I try to deal with the structure of power 
in that book, and the answer is yes, I do try. Um, at various points, there's various analyses that I undertake <clears throat> within that book to try to understand who is running the show here. I mean, can we get a sense of who's in charge? Um, so, in fact, uh, I start the final chapter of my book. It's a nine-chapter book. <clears throat> and chapter nine uh, starts with, a, I think, approximately a 10-page analysis of the structure of UFO secrecy, I think is what I call that sex, that segment. And I, in fact, try to, to elaborate on exactly the issues you're talking about. I've, I've talked about these at various public conferences in the past, and I realized that I needed to incorporate that analysis into this book. So uh, I, did, I did just recently write that part, in fact. Um, and what I think has happened is we're in a situation where Here's how I think the secrecy evolved, in a nutshell. Uh, pretend that it's the 1940s. You're Harry Truman, and your top science advisor, maybe Vannevar Bush or maybe one of your top generals, says to you, Sir, we have recovered technology that is not made by human hands. Okay, uh, It's very advanced and sophisticated. So the question is, what do you, the president do about this? Uh, do you tell the world? I suppose that might be a, a thought that would cross your mind. Should we tell the world? But there might be very good reasons, in fact, not to tell the world, at least not right away. Um, there's the public panic issue. You, you really have to wonder, you know, are people really going to freak, and how bad will it be? Uh, but the other more tangible issue is, at the time, in 1947, America still had a monopoly of functional atomic bombs. I mean, America was the only nation that had nuclear weapons. Right. Now, the Soviet Union had spies, and they were trying to get that secret. But the thing is, America was not willing to share that secret. The entire world at the U.N., in fact, wanted America to make atomic technology under U.N. control. And America said, no, absolutely not. That's the quickest way to give this to the Soviets. We're not going to do that. So America did not, did not want to share something as important as atomic technology. If, if Truman were to say, yes, we've recovered E.T. technology... It would be very difficult not to share that, too. You'd have the same pressures uh, that the atomic situation. And so um, I think, no, what he would logically want to do is you gather together a team of ultra top-level individuals, and you say, I want you to figure this out. Let's study this technology. Let's find out who these other beings are. Do we have anything to worry about? Uh, how bad is the panic going to be? And all the logical questions that you or I or anyone else would want to think about, I'll guarantee you that's what Harry Truman did. Now, the problem is, once the secrecy gets established, my feeling is it becomes very difficult to dislodge this particular secret because there's a lot of people who win out from this secret. Uh, to take the example further, let's say I'm the Army and I've got this exotic piece of technology that I have in my possession. Now, the Army ultimately is going to want to have something done with it. They're going to want to have, uh, you know, scientific breakthroughs made on the basis of it. So, so who do they give this to? Well, you're going to probably give it to your military contractors, your private defense firms, which that's their job. Their job is to make things for you. Uh, and so I think what happens is that the secret becomes increasingly privatized. Uh, you meet with Lockheed or you meet with Boeing or General Electric or any of these other, Raytheon and so on. And you would say, I want your scientists to study this and uh, develop, you know, 
uh, find out the electromagnetic properties of this or how can you duplicate this feature or high tensile fibers or whatever. And so they say, sure. So now the question is, who owns the secret? And, and hold it right there. I, That's they, exactly where exactly. we're going to be jumping in the, in the next part of the, uh, the uh, Veritas show. Hold it right there. We'll be right back. We're here with Richard Dolan. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com. Click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.